You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The barrier to entry of fraud is definitely dropped by the explosion of activity in these fraud channels. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Brittany Allen. She's a trust and safety architect at a company called SIFT, and she's going to be sharing the story of a new fraud ring on Telegram where the bad actors are leveraging the app to steal from on-demand food delivery services. So stick around for that. All right, Joe, let's uh, dive in here with some stories. Why don't you kick things off for us this week? All right, Dave, let's talk URLs. Uh, you, oh, goody. <laughs> <laughs> you love it when I get a little technical, don't you? Oh, it's just, it makes for scintillating radio. Go ahead, uh, well, Joe. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm going to do this as best as I can. A URL is a universal resource locator. And these are when you see a link on the web or you see a link in your email, a URL is behind that link. Yeah. Right. And these are ways to explicitly point to a single resource on the Internet. And there are five parts of a URL, but I'm only going to focus on the two parts today, but the five parts are the protocol. That's how it starts. So you remember when we used to give out web addresses, we'd say HTTP colon. Yeah. That's the protocol part. The HTTP is right. the, is the that, protocol. Okay. That's right. right. We're right, going to right. use hypertext transfer protocol. Uh, okay. It can also be other like HTTPS. It can be FTP, FTPS, or SFTP rather. Yeah. Uh, it can be SSH, but it always has some protocol label, and then a colon. Then immediately after that is the designation for the host. Now, the host is the actual computer, the physical or virtual computer that this service you're going to connect to runs on. And this can be either a fully qualified domain name or an IP address. But the important part for this story is that it starts with slash slash. So you would hear us say, go to http colon slash slash thecyberwire.com. That's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a URL because there are three optional parts that we're not going to talk about much more. There's a port number that you can use, a, a path, and then a query string. But that's not yeah. important for this story. Okay. All right. Now, Dave, let's do a little bit of uh, internet history. Oh, and goody. <laughs> we're going to get into the Wayback Machine. <laughs> okay. So the internet started mostly on Unix machines. Yeah. Uh, and they were Unix operating systems or Unix-like operating systems. And they used a slash to denote things like directories, right? Okay. So mm-hmm. everybody's familiar with folders, and those are just directories in a computer sense. Right, and it's worth noting that in the early days, before we had you know GUIs, before we had graphical user interfaces, that everything was done on the command line. And so when you wanted to get to a directory, you you typed it in. You weren't looking at physical graphics of folders on your desktop right. back, back in the day. And you can still do this on most, I think on all computers, you can open some kind of command line and navigate the directory using the old interface, and it's still mm-hmm. there. There are some people who swear by it and will not use any other interface on a computer. I'm not one of those people, although I do use it frequently. There are some things that's just easier to do in the command line. But Linux and Unix, actually, back then it was just Unix, they had these slashes for directories. Then along comes DOS. And the first version of DOS doesn't have any directories, right? So they don't think about directories. And then they use the slash character to denote command line arguments or switches for commands. 
So okay. when you're typing a command in, you can enter a uh, an argument to that command, an option, if you will. And that in DOS started with a slash, which is the same thing that Unix used for a directory. Uh-oh. Right. Yep. So when <laughs> DOS got directories, they had to go a different route because they couldn't just go, well, we're going to switch now and, and match up with Unix. We're going to use the backslash. Ugh, right. Right. So yep. they start using the backslash for directories, and that continues to this day uh-huh. in Windows-based operating systems. Now, in 1990, Tim Berners-Lee comes up with the URL scheme, and he uses slashes to denote the beginning of the host and the path. Okay. So because Tim Berners-Lee was probably working in a Unix environment, mm-hmm. right? So he says, if I want to denote a server, I'm going to use slash slash server name and then slash the directory and the path name. But the world is full now of DOS users who start becoming internet users. So what do they do? They don't understand that there's a difference between slash and backslash on, on mass. It's, it's a very common typo. If you start thinking of directories and you've been working in a DOS environment all your life, when you think of what separates a directory, you're going to think backslash and not slash. Right. That's the important part. U.S. cybersecurity company Great Horn has a blog posting this week about a clever trick that Fishers are using to get past spam filters. Hmm. Instead of putting slash slash at the beginning of their host name, they're putting slash backslash. Hmm. So a URL would read HTTP colon slash backslash the cyberwire.com. Okay. Now remember the first two parts of the URL are the protocol and then the host string. So if you go to your web browser and you type in HTTP colon slash slash or you type in slash backslash or backslash slash or even backslash backslash, <laughs> your web browser will go ahead and replace those incorrect slashes with the correct slashes. Okay. Not only will it do it if you type it in, but if you click on a link that is formatted that way, it'll still take you to the website. And I tested this yesterday with Firefox and with Chrome to make sure this is right. I actually wrote up a little HTML document and put a bunch of links that all went to Google and had all four different configurations for slashes, and every single one of these things worked in both browsers. Now, why is this significant? This is significant because these fishers have figured out that the spam filters and the malicious email filters, when they're looking for links... They don't check for alternating slashes in the links. That breaks the search algorithm. So mm. their links are getting right through these phishing prevention tools and, and, and spam prevention tools. And when they get through, if the user clicks on it, the browser goes, well, let me help you with that there, user. I'll reformat these things just fine. And bam, Bob's your uncle. Mm, <laughs> they, they have gone to your phishing site. And Great Horn has noticed a 5,000% increase in this recently. Wow. So the browser is trying to be helpful. The, the browser Correct. has your back if you mistype something or if by force of habit from being an old-time DOS user, you know, maybe you're you're putting backslashes in. Who knows? Right. But right. the browser <laughs> thinks it's being a, a good neighbor and helping you out. Yep. And the scammers have figured out that they can take advantage of this and Absolutely. get past spam filters. There's two parts here. We as humans don't like changing our behavior, right? Yeah. Which is yep. why... You least of all. Me least of all, correct. <laughs> I'm actually okay with changing my behavior when I realize something is is not secure. <laughs> I probably shouldn't do that. Okay. You go all the way back to the time when people who were developing DOS were looking at the situation, they, and they were like, should we make everybody change to slashes instead of backslashes and use something else to delineate switches? They said, you know, our user base is already accustomed to this. 
let's not tax them on this. Let's not make it more difficult to upgrade to a new version of DOS. Let's let's try to make that as painless as possible, which right. was probably the right answer, right? Because yeah. you don't have the foresight in the early 80s to go, well, one day the internet is going to be around, and in 10 <laughs> more years, Tim Berners-Lee is going to invent the URL, and that's going to use slashes. We better standardize on slashes now when we have a smaller user base than the user base of just about everybody in the world. Microsoft also not having a, a, a reputation for, for necessarily playing well with others. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> Certainly back that, in the day, right? That, yeah, they had, <laughs> they had this thing where you would have a standard and they'd be like, hey, that's nice, but we're going to do it this way. Yeah, right. Well, even early days of the internet, you know, look at their their browser was oh, yeah. non-standard compared to, didn't adhere to the standards <laughs> as yes, well I'm, as many thought it should, right? I'm very glad they came around on that. I credit largely the open source community for that because the open source community said to Microsoft, we're just going to build operating systems that are good and free and we're going to follow the standards and you're going to have to come in line. And eventually that's what happened. Mm-hmm. So what's to be done here? I mean, is this a matter of the folks with the spam filters catching up to this? I suppose if you, from a user point of view, you should be on the lookout for this, right? Right. From the user point of view, there's not much that can be done. This mm-hmm. is definitely a uh, development issue with the spam filter developers. They didn't take this into account. And you know what, Dave? The, the fix is really simple, and we're probably going to see these kind of things getting caught because, like we always say on this, it's, it's an, on this show. It's an arms race, right? Somebody mm. has found something that's wor- going to work, and you know it's like they've poked a hole in the dam or they found a hole in the dam and the water's rushing through. Somebody's going to run over and stick their finger in that hole. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> Yeah, but they're going to, I mean, as, as long as the, you know, water's leaking out of the dam, they're going to take advantage of it as long as they can, right. right? Which is what they've done here. That's right, and that's why Great Horn is seeing a, uh, a 5,000% increase wow. in this. Because fishers and scammers have realized, hey, this works. Let's make hay while the sun's shining. Yeah. Boy, I do not miss the days of backslashes. <laughs> I just, <laughs> there was a time when I was a, a DOS user, you know, but in the yep. early days. And uh, I guess at some point in time when I converted to becoming a Mac user, the backslashes just sort of were like, oh, God. <laughs> it just it's just confusing, I think. All right, well, interesting story for sure. My story this week comes from our friends over at Naked Security. Uh, this is written by Paul Ducklin, who's been a guest on our show, thanks to uh, our pal Carol Terrio. This story is uh, titled Scam Club Gang Outed for Exploiting iPhone Browser Bug to Spew Ads. Hmm. There's a couple parts to this story. There's a, a digital ad company who's just called Confiant, and they published an analysis of a malvertising group that they call Scam Club. The Scam Club group, these are the folks who provide the annoying pop-up ads that we've all seen on our devices. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think particularly... For me, I've seen them on mobile devices where, you know, you're browsing along, minding your own business. It doesn't really matter. It could be a totally legit website. And all of a sudden something pops up and it says, good news, you're today's lucky winner. <laughs> right. right. And little bits of confetti <laughs> fall down. Right, right. Yeah. Yes. You, you know, you are either going to get a new iPhone or a $100 gift card to Amazon or who knows what. But it's, it's valuable. And all you need to do is take our brief survey. Right. And, and you will uh, win this prize. Well, of course, uh, the survey is a scam. Usually there is no prize. Uh, right. Sometimes you have to pay money to access things. And it, 
it's it's all quite scammy. And evidently, uh, these folks were taking advantage of a vulnerability, which uh, actually has a, a CVE number, 2021-1801, which uh, Apple recently patched in oh, iOS and iPad OS. So if you're not, you should be running 14.4 on those devices. And they said this this wasn't a really severe bug, like it didn't allow remote code execution or any kind of privilege escalation or, or anything like that. Um, but it did allow the advertisers to evade some of the security restrictions that the WebKit sandbox has on these devices. Now, just as a little side topic, it's worth noting that on iOS devices, Apple insists that you use their engine for web browsing, right? You have to use the one that they provide. So, so there is no other web browser on iOS. It's a little trickier than that. So like you can get Chrome on iOS, right. but it's running Apple's core web engine. It's running the WebKit uh, engine underneath. Okay. And, you know, I mean, I think there's two sides to that. On the one side, this ensures from Apple's point of view that there's a baseline level of security, but from the user point of view, it's restrictive, right? You can't, right. You, you can't just go run whatever you want. That's the bargain you make with iOS, right? In exchange that is exactly, for security. That's the bargain you make with Apple. Yeah. And their reasoning behind it is sound, I think. Apple's priority has always been the user experience, and they've always wanted it to be consistent. And as they've matured as a company, they now want that to also be secure. So that means they have to have this totalitarian view of this, where things like exactly what we're talking about here happen. If you want to be a web browser, you're going to have to use WebKit as your rendering engine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so evidently this bug allowed these scammers to execute redirects, you know, so mm. they'll send you to other websites and fetch content and so on and so forth. So uh, two things here I wanted to note. First of all, if you're using an, an iOS device, uh, it's in your best interest to keep it current. And uh, right. so go and check to see if you have an update coming. The latest update protects against this thing. Uh, but then the other thing is I, I thought it was worth pointing out about these online surveys, you know, that you should watch out <laughs> right. for them. They, they they can seem harmless. You know, they lure you along. You remember not long ago we were talking to uh, one of the researchers from Ben-Gurion University who said that there's kind of a sunk cost thing that goes with these. Like the longer right. you go down the path of the survey, the more likely you are to stick with it because you've already invested time. <laughs> yeah, you've invested time, so you're willing to give up more information. Right. Anytime someone starts you down a path of, of doing a survey in, ex in exchange for a prize, don't do that. It's yeah, not, it, it's, <laughs> there is no prize. There, there is no prize at the end of the tunnel here. Right, um, right. The, the light at the end of the tunnel is an oncoming train of identity theft. <laughs> nice, nice, right. A good point here that, that Paul Ducklin makes. He says, know your privacy limits and stick to them. Right. You know, what are you willing to share and what are you not? And again, these types of things, these surveys, they lead you down that path and they ease you into a sense of, of comfort where you give out, maybe they, they start out by asking you for a piece of information that you're perfectly willing to share. And then 10 minutes later, you're 10 questions down the, the line and, and you're, you know, you're, you're giving them your blood type, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> I think that's worth mentioning as well. Agreed. All right. Well, we will have a uh, link to uh, this story in our show notes. Again, uh, our thanks to the folks over at Naked Security, part of Sophos, for this story that uh, we're using this week. Those are our stories. It is time to move on to our catch of the day. 
Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named John. John received this letter in the mail. It's not anything out of the ordinary, but what is unusual is that he actually received a physical letter and it is a picture of the letter with the envelope behind it. It's remarkable. It claims to be from Canada Trust. Right. Uh, logo uh, there on the top of the, uh, the, the printed the TD, letter. Yeah, the yep. TD Bank logo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but that logo is in black and white and not the light green that TD Bank is usually in. Okay. Uh, it goes like this. I am aware that this letter has come to surprise to you as we've not met before or handled any business deal in the past. Nevertheless, I've contacted you with genuine intentions and I hope I can trust you with this inheritance opportunity which I explain below. My name is Mr. Lenny Mendoez, an account manager with TD Canada Trust Bank, Ontario, Canada. I retrieved your contact address in my search for the next of kin to a deceased customer of our bank, Mr. George, a citizen of your country who lived and died in London from cardiac arrest in the year 2011. Unfortunately, this customer died interstate, leaving his bank account with an open beneficiary status. All efforts made by our bank to locate his relatives have been unsuccessful, so I decided to write you. As I have monitored this account in the bank for almost 10 years now, no one has come forth with any claim. I would like to present you from our bank the next of kin to claim this dormant account worth 9.2 million U.S. dollars. 9,200,000 U.S. dollars. I assure you that this transaction would be handled under due inheritance procedures and every necessary legitimate arrangement will be put in place to make sure you the real beneficiary of the inheritance funds. It also requires all confidentiality. At this stage, I believe that you are ready to keep this absolutely discreet until you are able to claim the funds from the bank. Once the funds are released to you, it will be shared between the two of us. Please send your response to my personal email, LennyMendoez at LennyConsult.com, indicating readiness to proceed with this transaction. Then I will give you more details and we shall have in-depth discussion regarding a successful completion of this transaction. I await your response. Sincerely, Mr. Lenny Mendoez. <laughs> this is fantastic. He lived and died from cardiac arrest. <laughs> lived and died in London from cardiac arrest. That, that's a bad sentence. I, I, <laughs> this is almost identical to our, uh, our scam email from last week that we had. Uh, the only difference and the reason I put it in here was because these guys are actually going out of their way to send people mail. There's a cost associated with this. Mm-hmm. They're doing the same tricks where they have our uh, the listener's full name and they're addressing it to him and they're making the deceased persons, the fictitious deceased person, have the same last name. It reminds me, you remember, uh, I don't know, the past couple of weeks we were talking about uh, Amazon review scams yes. and how I had purchased something on Amazon. Um, my wife actually got a postcard in the mail from someone she had purchased something from on Amazon asking her to do a review and that if she did the review, took a picture of the review, sent it to them, they would send her free product. Hmm. But it, it, what struck me about that was they went to the trouble of paying for postage. Right, right. right. Like they sent this in the mail. <laughs> right. <laughs> which is, it's just fascinating to me, which means it must be worth it. You know, those reviews have value to the the more good reviews you get, the more stuff you sell, I guess. And they've done yeah, I wonder what the return rate on these letters is. I mean, because our guard is up when we receive an email like this, but maybe our guard is not so up when we receive an actual letter. 
Interesting. All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Uh, we want to thank our listener for sending that in to us. Uh, we would love to hear from you if you have an interesting catch of the day or a question for us. You can write us. It is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Brittany Allen. She is the trust and safety architect at a company called SIFT. And uh, our discussion centered on a new fraud ring that they've been analyzing. These folks uh, use Telegram and uh, they leverage the app to steal from on-demand food delivery services. Here's my conversation with Brittany Allen. We spend a lot of time learning about fraud in order to fight fraud and One of the resources that we had been looking at before had been looking into dark web activity, seeing what happens with information that ends up there due to a data breach, see what's happening within these fraud groups. But there's an easier layer uh, to access, and that is within these apps such as Telegram that are secure messaging apps or are privacy focused. And there is a lot of fraud activity within those groups. Uh, They might be groups that have the most obvious names, such as Fraud World or uh, (laughs) Scam World. There's one called Fraud University. There's some really great ones in there. But basically, we were able to go into those groups, sort of learn the language, learn what they're talking about when they say uh, that they have freshly spammed fulls for sale, learn all of that info. And then we were able to find this emerging uh, pattern of fraudsters who would agree to order food on behalf of other fraudsters at a heavily discounted rate. And we learned that that was just another little glimpse into the part of the fraud ecosystem was that specific role. Before we dig into some of the details of this specific fraud, can can you give us a little more information on these groups themselves? Is there any sort of vetting before you join a group like this or is anybody welcome? There can be. There are layers to access. So the groups that we are in are the ones where all you need to do is know that the group exists, either by pulling it up in a a very limited search that it actually isn't that useful for this purpose via Telegram or seeing that the groups are advertised elsewhere. Maybe they're advertised in a Reddit thread or maybe someone has mentioned them on Twitter or somewhere else online. And then once you get into a few of the Telegram groups, you'll realize there are more and more other ones that are being shared within those channels. And sort of the network that we've been able to build of groups we have insight into has only grown. Now you're completely right. There are some that are locked down either by paying to join them or by the fact that you would have to make a certain number of purchases before you would qualify to join them. Those are premium groups. A couple of them have opened up to us regular people every now and then. I've managed to squeeze into one or two of them. But honestly, the insight that we get from the public groups is staggering to see just how much is happening in plain sight. Hmm. Well, let's go through this specific case here that you tracked. This is uh, having to do with some on-demand food delivery services. Take Walk us through this step by step. How does it work? Absolutely. So as I mentioned before, with the, the fraud ecosystem, all of the fraudsters have different roles to play. It's not like they do everything all of the time. And so there are these fraudsters who have advertised their service of 
I will buy food for you on your behalf. They say what restaurants or what food delivery apps are their specialty. And then they say at this rate, you can pay me via Bitcoin. It'll be a substantial discount. So maybe you're only paying 25 to 30 or 40 percent of the value of the food. So it's therefore uh, pretty exciting or pretty attractive to you so that you can not have to spend a lot of effort on this ordering of the food and then also save a little money along the way. But what they do is they advertise what they've got available. You, as this prospective diner, will reach out to the fraudster with a screenshot of what you want from that website. So you would pull up that food delivery app, let's say, add a whole bunch of things to your cart, take a screenshot, send it to the fraudster, make your payment via Bitcoin or whatever else they accept, and then they will place that order on your behalf. And the next thing you know, you'll have your food delivered to you. You'll have pretty good plausible deniability just in case the food delivery app does catch on or try to investigate you because you won't have been the one that placed the order, but you'll still benefit in the end from getting the food. And it's just a, a sort of another level of service. And the fraudsters that are running the scam are the ones who specialize in knowing what are the current vulnerabilities with the delivery apps and the restaurants that I know are popular and will help me make money by facilitating these orders. You'll see them post that a certain restaurant is down, which means they can no longer get their orders through or it's back up, but now there's a limit. Your cart needs to be of this size or if it's a delivery app that supports uh, buying alcohol, you can't order liquor at this moment because we're, we're not able to get through the fraud prevention system of the customer or sorry, of the merchant at this time. There's a lot of variables behind that, that you'll just see through these advertisements that are repeated again and again and again and again throughout these fraud channels on Telegram. Now, how are the fraudsters paying for these orders? What's that mechanism there? So when you've got the diners on one hand paying via Bitcoin, which is something that is more secure, isn't going to be prone to a dispute or having the funds clawed back if they're dissatisfied. So the fraudster running the scam is happy to receive that payment. The fraudster running the scam is going to be using stolen credit cards to make his purchase or might be using access to accounts that have been compromised via account takeover, such as when user credentials, email address, and passwords are leaked via data breaches or otherwise sold on the dark web. So he's got one of those two setups ready to go on that food delivery app, for example. And in the end, that just hurts the merchant financially. If a credit card that is stolen is used to pay via their app or if an account is taken over and the credit card on file is used maliciously, in the end, the real legitimate cardholder is going to file a chargeback dispute against that payment to get their money back. And not only does that leave the merchant with a loss for that particular transaction, but it also hits them with a chargeback dispute fee, which in the case of an order for, uh, let's say, $10 worth of dumplings could be more, could even be double the value of that order itself. And their losses can quickly snowball. Hmm. It's interesting to me that nobody goes after the person who was buying the food, who's, uh, you know, at some point complicit in this. Is it is it just not worth tracking them down so far? I have heard some stories of people who have placed orders being sort of chased down or being targeted by the merchants. To be able to show up on the merchant's radar like that, first of all, you're going to really need to have a high value of orders. They're not going to have the time to, let's say, go after one person who is connected to one fraudulent pizza order in a city that's 2,000 miles away from this company's headquarters. 
that they aren't able to send an enforcement agent out to. That's just something that's really not scalable for them. And then also remember, there's kind of that degree of separation. What would be really the most valuable thing to go after? The one guy that ended up with the pizza or the fraudster who facilitated the order of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pizzas that week and was a bigger sort of financial impact on the merchant. And that person is harder to get to just because of the lack of information about them that can be gleaned publicly, that can be gleaned by looking at these telegram groups. So maybe you cut off one person who benefited from the scheme, but then you don't get to the source and you don't actually stop the source. Although I will say I have seen some amusing to me as a fraud fighter who's been in trust and safety for over decades. So I'm amused by this, but I have definitely seen some people in the app saying, oh my gosh, you know, I got questioned, I got called by the merchant or I got this happened to me. What do I do? What do I do? And trying to be talked through (laughs) some of those exact situations. A little bit of schadenfreude. I don't hate to see it. Right, right. Absolutely. What about the, the delivery people themselves? I mean, do they suffer anything from this? There, it seems to me like they're the the people who might have uh, you know a lot to lose, especially in these hard times. You know, that's a really interesting angle. It's a really interesting point to address because if there is the impetuous for the person who's committing the fraud to look as normal as possible while submitting an order and they're paying with a stolen credit card, they should be fine to leave a tip. They should be fine to leave a generous tip because it isn't their money. Mm. And it would just come down to what is sort of that agreement and arrangement between the, the merchant and the delivery guy Is he working directly for the merchant? What happens if there's a dispute or a complaint on an order that he delivers? But I would think in most cases that they are protected from loss. And it's really the merchant that will have to eat this because of the nature of the fraud, that it's coming from a fraudulent credit card payment and didn't have anything to do with the quality of the order. But that is a really good point and would be very unfortunate uh, in these times, as you pointed out. Yeah, so what's to be done here? What are your recommendations for, for folks to best protect themselves against this sort of thing? So for merchants, that's going to be a tricky question because if they are one of the more popular restaurants, let's say, there are going to be a lot of fraudsters who are trying to figure out what their vulnerabilities are and are testing them in multiple different ways. Do these accounts that were compromised work Does it work if I put a certain item in my cart or if I leave an item in my cart for a certain amount of time and then come back? What can I do to look as legitimate as possible and to not trigger any sort of indicators of suspicious activity for this merchant? So first of all, just being aware that it's happening is a step in the right direction. But merchants also need to have an understanding of what the signals of that fraudulent transaction are. And because that can be a huge amount of signals to to deal with, using machine learning to pair that with the vast amounts of data would really help the teams analyze those different signals to stop a suspicious transaction. So it may not just come down to, is it a brand new account? What type of item is being ordered? But like the actual behavior, for example, of the fraudster while in that account, there's a lot of lot of different factors to consider. And honestly, if you look at the different kinds of risk that different kinds of merchants can face, what has the least amount of time for a merchant to be able to react? Food delivery, it could be that the delivery guy is going to leave with that bag of burritos in just a few minutes. 
It's going to be a very quick process or the delivery is guaranteed to happen in 30 minutes or less. There's a really small window that they have to analyze all of the uh, data and signals that they possibly can to try to prevent fraud loss. And so we are at the point now where these sort of systems, as you describe, you know, using things like artificial intelligence, machine learning and so on, they can detect these patterns that would uh, otherwise, you know, elude, say, a human who is looking for them? Definitely, as far as being able to do so on a more quick and efficient basis. Yes, mm. it's you can't imagine that there would be the possibility for some uh, human being to sit in front of every single one of these orders and say, does this look legitimate or not? There's no way that that can scale. And there's no way that a, a, a merchant could reasonably do that to try to prevent this type of fraud, especially the type that's changing. Like I said, I, I will pull up my Telegram account in the morning just to see if there's any buzz about new attacks or new companies that have been targeted. And I'll, on average, have about 30,000 messages ready to look through. I, I couldn't possibly read them all, but that's really an example of how much activity and how many different ways these companies are being hit that they would need to react to and try to stay in front of. Because this type of fraud is happening on these secure messaging apps like Telegram and not just in somewhere like the dark web that is more difficult for your casual user to access, that we're seeing activity there from professional fraudsters who are reselling stolen credentials, fraudsters who are running Telegram rings or food delivery rings like what I just described. And we're also just seeing casual fraudsters in the mix. Maybe this order to get discounted food is someone's first step into being comfortable with fraud, with seeing how much risk they're willing to take on by sharing their you know, home address with a fraudster who is now going to hopefully send food to them if they can trust this situation. And as more and more and more people are using these apps or as the membership of these fraud groups grow, that just takes more casual fraudsters and increases their comfort level with committing fraud and defrauding companies. And, and that is a emerging pattern that merchants really should be keeping an eye on because the barrier to entry of fraud is definitely dropped by the explosion of activity in these fraud channels. All right, Joe, what do you think? I think this is awesome that, that she has infiltrated one of these groups. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty good. I might try to do this on Telegram as well, just to see if I can get in and see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, because you can just get in by knowing they exist, and that's just the first step, and then you can get into more. If I guess if you buy fraud services, which I'm not, I have no interest in doing. I'm fascinated that the public group offers as much information as Brittany says it does, and that's why I kind of want to check this out. Very interesting with the food delivery fraud. With Were I a bad guy? Mm -hmm. I would not do this. I would use the service to pick up food, but I would never have a criminal process end at my physical address. <laughs> right. right. That's just me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It is. These people have no problem doing that. And I, I don't understand why. I mean, you're going to give somebody your address and then commit fraud and have that delivered to. Now, maybe you're having it delivered to a vacant house. Maybe not. I love when Brittany talks about the panic of some of these people who have been who have scammed a restaurant. And if you're ordering from a large restaurant chain, you may be fine. But if you order from a small business, I can certainly see that business owner taking it personally. 
and right. calling you up and going, you know, I have your address and phone number, right? Right, right, exactly, right. <laughs> I mean, so, yeah, me, me and uh, half a dozen of my best dishwashers are going to pay you a visit. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I'd be terrified. That's right. exactly the my worst. This is why I just, I just buy my food. I wouldn't do it because it's wrong. There could be real-world consequences for people who do this. For larger apps like Grubhub and Uber Eats, I wonder who pays for the fraudulent transaction. Is it the food delivery app or, or is it the restaurant? I don't know. I don't use those services. My kids use those services. I don't. I, I just don't see the value in them. I'm not 100% sure, but my, my sense is from some of the stories I've read related to this sort of thing that the ultimate victim here usually ends up being the restaurant. And, right. and so, you know, rest, so many restaurants are are mom and pop businesses or local, even if they're chains, they're, they're small ones. You know, it's not like it's just being written off by a corporate behemoth like McDonald's or something. These are real people who are getting hit by these things. Yeah. Large, large companies can have a a good security and fraud program, but small merchants can check the terms and conditions of these delivery apps. These small merchants don't have their own apps. Usually they use some third-party app like Grubhub or Uber Eats or what's the one for pizza slice. Yep. Yep. Brittany makes a good point about the time disparity here. Uh, Food has to be delivered quickly, but the cardholder has something like 60 days to dispute a charge. So the restaurant really does have a risk. They have to have faith that the person ordering the food is a legitimate person and not some fraudster because all the cardholder has to do is say, that's not my charge. And the credit card company goes, okay, we're not going to pay it then. Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. that's it. And that business is out the money. And yeah. as Brittany points out, they're also out of fee. Right. Yeah. It's it's interesting stuff. The, this evolution of of this particular scam. There's a. This is one of those ones that leaves me scratching my head. You know. Right. Just, as you say, because if, if it ends at the scammer's home or place of business or something, I mean, the brazenness, I guess, is what right. strikes me about it. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a good way to put it. It's absolutely brazen. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, our thanks to uh, Brittany Allen for joining us. So we do appreciate her taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, And of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.